This week, the Senate kicked off the impeachment trial of President Trump, who's facing charges of abuse of power and obstruction of justice. We are going to take you inside where all the action did or did not happen. It began Monday night when Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell released the rules for the trial, which he said would be based on the rules during Bill Clinton's impeachment trial in 1999. Tuesday morning, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer blasted McConnell's rules. McConnell's resolution is nothing short of a national disgrace, and it will go down in history as one of the very dark days of the Senate. Here's CQ Roll Call's Griffin Connolly from inside the Capitol on day one. The key question is whether Democrats can convince four Republican senators to switch sides and essentially agree to call new witnesses and call for new documents from the White House. Those four senators would be Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, Susan Collins of Maine, Cory Gardner of Colorado, and Mitt Romney from Utah. The trial's main dramatic intrigue hinges upon whether those four senators will agree with Democrats to admit new evidence. That's really the key to this entire thing unfolding. Meanwhile, protesters gathered outside Capitol Hill to voice their concerns. And can you explain the sign they're holding up to me? I'm holding up a sign with uh, two clenched fists tearing the American flag in half. And it has the, uh, the type at the bottom that says, his lies tear us apart. And, and who's he? Who's he? Who do you think he is? Everybody knows who he is. <laughs> and inside, people from across the country were lining up to get a seat in the chamber to witness history. Well, my wife and I are taking our, this is our 25th anniversary trip. What do you think of the impeachment trials? It's a big bunch of nothing. Uh, The Democrats don't like Trump and they're going to do whatever they can to try to get him out of there. And I think they're going to drag it out to the election and use it. And then if he gets reelected, they'll probably start all over. Hopefully, Hopefully the Republicans will win back the House. As the debate over trial rules began, McConnell was caught on mic, urging those in the chamber to stand for Chief Justice Roberts. Well, somebody please, there you go. I'd like to remind everybody to take your seats, and when the Chief Justice comes in, we really should all stand. To show a sign of unity and respect for the impeachment process. But as the night stretched on, Gerald Nadler, one of the House managers prosecuting the president, and Trump's lawyer, Pat Cipollone, sparred. The president sometimes relies on a theory of absolute immunity that says that he can order anybody in the executive branch not to testify to the House or the Senate or to a court. It's embarrassing the president's counsels would talk about this today. The only one who should be embarrassed, Mr. Nadler, is you. For the way you've addressed this body, Mr. Nadler, you owe an apology to the President of the United States and his family. You owe an apology to the Senate. But most of all, you owe an apology 
to the American people. Chief Justice Roberts intervened. I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the President's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. They debated until early Wednesday morning, with none of the amendments getting passed in the chamber and almost every vote being down party lines. There were a few changes to the rules, though, and some senators trying to get around them. Here's CQ's Griffin Connolly again. Per rules handed down by the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms, who is the security force that protects the chamber, senators and anyone, for that matter, in the chamber aren't allowed to bring in electronics. That includes phones, laptops, earbuds, anything that could be disruptive to the proceeding. A certain handful of senators have circumvented that rule by wearing Apple watches. Wednesday morning, senators began filtering into the Capitol, bleary-eyed from their long night, but armed with candy for the day ahead. Just before, the president weighed in from Switzerland, where he was attending the Global Elite's annual summit in Davos. We're doing very well. I got to watch enough. I thought our team did a very good job. But honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the material. House impeachment manager Adam Schiff fired back at the president. Indeed, they do have the material hidden from the American people. That is nothing to brag about. Back in the chamber, the Senate chaplain, referencing the tense exchange between Nadler and Cipollone, opened the session with a prayer reminding the lawmakers to proceed respectfully. Help them remember that patriots reside on both sides of the aisle, that words have consequences, and that how something is said can be as important as what is said. With that, the first official day of the trial began. Over the coming days, you will hear remarkably consistent evidence of President Trump's corrupt scheme and All is direct evidence of President Trump's solicitation of foreign interference in the 2020 election. But that call was not the beginning of the story of the president's corrupt scheme, nor was it the end. The evidence shows that President Trump unlawfully withheld military assistance appropriated by Congress to aid our ally in order to extort the I think it's quite interesting that Ambassador Bolton categorized the corrupt scheme, the pressure campaign. The truth is going to come out. And the only question is, do you want to hear it now? You want to know the full truth now? During an afternoon break, the message from Republicans was unified. The arguments were sounding very similar to the arguments they'd heard the day before. Here's Ted Cruz, the Republican from Texas. And I suspect the Democrats, through a fit yesterday, insisted they needed at least three full days to present the arguments. I think we're going to see an awful lot of repetition, making the same points over and over again. The president's lead personal attorney, Jay Succolo, agreed. He just went through two and a half hours of laying out his case to go with the 11 hours of laying out their case last night. Now, unless he's making it up, he seems like he's got a lot of information, so proceed with your case. 
Then it was back in the chamber where Schiff spoke again. Why is it that Colonel Vindman, who worked for Fiona Hill, who worked for John Bolton and Dr. Kupperman, why is it that they were willing to stick their neck out and answer lawful subpoenas when their bosses wouldn't? They risked everything, their careers. And yes, I know what you're asked to decide may risk yours too. Finally, around 9.30 p.m., Adam Schiff wrapped up his speech for the day and yielded the floor. Mitch McConnell adjourned the trial. Here's CQ Roll Call senior writer Niels Lesniewski. One of the things that's been interesting to watch inside the chamber is how many people, how many senators are coming and going and how often they stay away in the cloakroom. Another phenomenon is people seem to like to stand up a lot. So I'm having memories of international flights. You know the advice they give to people when they're on, say, the 18-hour international flight uh, to stand up and walk around the cabin a lot to prevent uh, injuries or illness? Well, that seems to be happening in the Senate chamber. By Thursday, it was like senators were living their own version of Groundhog Day. They were doing whatever they could to stay engaged. Senator Burr gave out fidget spinners. Candy made another appearance. Even a stress ball was spotted. While the mood was light on the outside, things were different in the chamber, where the prosecutors continued laying out their arguments. But here, right is supposed to matter. It's what's made us the greatest nation on earth. No constitution can protect us. Right doesn't matter anymore. CQ Roll Call reporter Catherine Tully McManus was in the chamber on Thursday. She explained how it wasn't only senators who faced restrictions. The press have been severely restricted from our normal access at the Capitol. Uh, There's a magnetometer Uh, or a metal detector uh, that in the Senate press gallery as reporters attempt to enter the Senate chamber, uh, reporters like everyone else who enters the U.S. Capitol building is already screened through a metal detector and they have um, x-ray machines for your bags. Uh, So we've already been screened once. We all have uh, hard passes, uh, press passes, credentials to the U.S. Capitol. There's literally a list with all our names. They know who we are. Um, and the, this morning, there was a significant line to get into the Senate chamber. You know, 15 reporters lined up just waiting after the gavel had already gone down and the uh, the trial had already begun. Um, reporters just waiting in line. Other restrictions Uh, are put in place that prohibit us from walking and talking with lawmakers, which is a standard practice up here. Uh, A lawmaker might not want to stop at a bank of microphones and be on TV, but they're happy to, as they walk back to their office, chat about whatever is the topic of the day or whatever the topic a reporter might need. Uh, While most of us up here right now are covering the impeachment trial, there's also healthcare reporters, environmental reporters, Uh, defense reporters who also have questions for lawmakers. And in a huge, huge uh, scrum with dozens of reporters all asking about impeachment, uh, they're not going to get a word in edgewise. And that's where the walk and talk 
come really comes in. Um, I have also personally seen conversations between lawmakers and reporters where the lawmaker is engaged and is choosing to be in a conversation with a reporter and have had uh, police intervene and say, you can't talk here. Um, and that is very surprising to all of us that uh, a senator's will to conduct a conversation with a person of their choice um, would be overridden by uh, security personnel. We've heard from a few of our reporters how things have been different than the usual on the Hill this week. And that got us thinking, is it always like this during impeachment? So we spoke with Paul Kane, a reporter at the Washington Post and former roll caller, who took us even further into the absurdity. He covered the Clinton impeachment trial and says things this week have been pretty different from the proceedings in 1999. Paul, you're one of the longest tenured reporters, I would think, up there on the Hill now. You've been through State's News Service and uh, Roll Call. You were a a one-time employee here at Roll Call, and now you're at the Post. You were here during the impeachment trial of President Clinton. How does it, how does it compare to today? Um, you know, I think if, the, the way to understand it, I guess, from the media standpoint, is just everything is on steroids. Um, you have to think back to uh, 1999. Um, CNN was the only real, what I would call, cable network that that sort of knew what it was doing. Um, uh, MSNBC and Fox had really only started uh, about two years earlier. Uh, They sort of came out of the wake of the OJ trial when people sort of realized that that, that cable news could function 24-7. And at that point, there had been really things that covered crime covered, you know, there was the Friday afternoon car chases that they would fill the airwaves with. Um, And now you're living in an environment in which you have three full-time cable networks that are devoted only, 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 only to American politics and government. Uh, It has to be something incredible uh, to really break through that isn't about American politics. And when those things do happen, they, the, shows immediately turn them back to what does this mean to American politics? So you have this, this, this place today that's just much more on sort of constant media steroids and constant attention that, um, that you can just feel everything moves faster, quicker. Um, and, and then it, it just, it creates much more tension up here than there was during Clinton. Um, there's a, you know, a fear of making any mistake at all. Uh, it just, it lends itself to, uh, just more, more tension and division between the press and, and the lawmakers themselves, of course. Now, a lot has been made of the fact that in 1999, the senators agreed, all 100 of them, to set the rules around that trial of President Clinton. This time around, it was a party line vote. Does that say something about how the political climate has changed in the intervening two decades? What's really different is the Senate as an institution itself and the people within the institution. In 1999, Trent Lott was majority leader and Tom Daschle was minority leader. But I would 
hazard a guess that there were probably seven or eight other senators who were more powerful, who wielded more clout, who had more uh, chutzpah. Um, you know, you had at that time Ted Kennedy, the liberal lion, who was even in the minority at that point. Kennedy had built so many allies like Aaron Hatch that he could get more bills passed as the minority uh, ranking member of the Senate Health Committee than, than Lamar Alexander is getting passed today as the chairman of the Senate Health Committee. Uh, you had Phil Graham, who's the iconic conservative from Texas. Um, there were all these people that were just more powerful than the two leaders. Everybody had this feeling of, well, if Ted Kennedy you know, the liberal lion and iconic conservative Phil Graham are supporting this, then it's, then it's good enough for me. There are no people like that anymore. There is no Ted Kennedy. He died 11 years ago. Phil Graham retired from the Senate at the end of 2002. And the people who are here do not have that clout anymore. What's happened to the Senate is it's all power has devolved down to the Senate majority leader and minority leader. And they're the only two people who really seem to be able to ever make a deal. And on this front, they're just, they, they are now mortal enemies, uh, uh, Schumer and McConnell. So that's one of the biggest changes in the Senate. There's just no, there's no organic flow to the place the way there would have been 15 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, where you had people who were more powerful than the majority minority leader who could get their John McCain, 1998, John McCain was the chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee. He worked on a tobacco bill to try and settle all of the lawsuits between the state's, uh, state attorneys general and uh, big tobacco. And his biggest opponents to his legislation were Trent Lott, the majority leader, and Mitch McConnell, who was then the chair of the uh, Republican Senatorial Committee. <laughs> you know what? John McCain got his bill to the floor. He got it on the floor. He spent three weeks fighting, hassling amendments after amendments. It didn't pass. It, it died of sort of a, 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 a slow, painful filibuster. But you know what? He got his bill to the floor. In today's Senate, you don't get your bill to the floor uh, unless you have everything locked down and you've got about 85 votes to support it. And Mitch McConnell knows that it can be dealt with in about 36 hours or less. That's the biggest change from the 99 Clinton impeachment, you know, the Senate back then to the Senate today. Paul, you pointed out recently in your column that uh, something I thought was very astute, that the parties have really flipped their positions on the handling of the investigation of President Trump in this Ukraine issue now that the trial has begun. Can you explain how, how they have? How has that worked? So on the House side, you had this, uh, the, the, the House Democrats in the majority, more than 230 of them, and uh, you know, they controlled the process. So they never complained about the process. And they mocked House Republicans every time the House Republicans uh, you know, complained about the process. They said, if you can't argue the facts, you end up arguing process. Um, and that was the mantra over there because they were in control. But, you know, the, the, the reality is they were always headed for a Senate trial that was going to be run by the majority Republicans. This is the first time there has ever been an impeachment of a president in which the party control of the House and Senate are split. 
you know, remember in 1998, 1999, Republicans controlled the House and the Senate. Um, in, uh, uh, and the Republicans controlled the Congress, had overwhelming majorities in 1868 of Congress in 1973-74 uh, when Nixon almost got impeached and had to resign before that that happened. So they always knew that this they were going to lose control of the process. So now that it's over here on the Senate side, Democrats are complaining and complaining that McConnell has been the one who's doing a bad process, who who isn't uh, you know who isn't letting them call witnesses, who isn't letting them uh, present the case. At one point, he was trying to jam House Democrats on the amount of time that they would have to present the case. It's different, but at the same time, it's really predictable, Sean. We should have sort of seen it coming, and this is part of the reason why Nancy Pelosi was really hesitant. Uh, for most of the year, most of 2019, at bringing up impeachment because she knew the end game was always going to be kicking this into Mitch McConnell's Senate and knowing that McConnell's, you know, a trusted ally of Trump's, and it, it was just always destined to hit this point. And now they're here, and the you know the Senate Democrats sound a lot like House Republicans. Right. right. I mean, indeed, the outcome here is foreordained. We all expect that the Senate will not convict President Trump. So having watched the House managers these past two days make their case, what's their goal? What are they trying to do? You know, I think it has, the the Democratic goal at this point, I think, has been trying to uh, apply enough political pressure to to sort of the group of five to 10 Republicans who they think could possibly be willing to call more witnesses to call John Bolton or Mick Mulvaney and getting that political victory just to be able to call more witnesses would be the, the, their best hope at this point. Uh, No one's really even sure what they would say if they were called to testify. Um, No one knows for certain. But uh, that would be a, a symbolic victory, and they think it would, you know, if Bolton gave some damning testimony, they think it would possibly move the numbers in these states. Um, it's really more about politics at this point than in terms of the political pain that they're trying to uh, apply to those five or six Republicans who are in what, you know, competitive to slightly competitive Senate races later this year. Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Happy to do it, Sean. In the meantime, the president has kept to the status quo, unleashing his distaste for the trial on his Twitter feed while maintaining his scheduled appearances. Here he is Friday at the March for Life, an annual pro-life event that marks the passing of Roe versus Wade. And above all, we know that every human soul is divine and every human life, born and unborn, is made in the holy image of Almighty God. As the week wraps up, so does the impeachment manager's opening arguments. The president's defense lawyers are up next, and we'll be back next week with coverage of what they have to say. And thank you for listening. I'm Sean Zeller. The producers of this show were Micaela Rodriguez, Evan Campbell, and Joanne Levine. CQ on Congress is produced by CQ Roll Call 
a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.